Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. This episode is a recording of a public event held on February 13, 2024 at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Global Minnesota hosted a timely discussion of Ukraine's post-war outlook with two distinguished guests, Arsenyi Yatsenyuk, chairman of the Kyiv Security Forum and former Prime Minister of Ukraine, and Oleksandra Matvichuk, head of the Center for Civic Liberties and 2022 Nobel Prize laureate. After their keynotes, the conversation continued with a panel of local human rights and Ukrainian experts. Here is Rebuilding Ukraine, a future of resilience and renewal. I'm very happy and very pleased to open today's event. Uh, today in uh, Minneapolis, in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, on the 719th day of the big war in Ukraine. Uh, while we are 11 days before the second anniversary of the big war in Ukraine, today we are speaking about the, what's going on in my country and which could be the ways of rebuilding and renewal the country after the war. My name is Irina Drobovich. I'm the Humphrey Fellow at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I arrived here a few months uh, ago for the International Humphrey Fellowship. And together with me today, we have uh, our, our honored guest from Ukraine, the former Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, uh, human rights activist Alexandra Matvichuk, and the panelists uh, uh, on the panel. Uh, and um, before we, are, we start, I would like to appreciate all the partners uh, and the partnerships we have built for making this event possible. Uh, first and foremost, the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, the nonprofit Global Minnesota. Special gratitude for partnership I send to the Human Rights Program at the University of Minnesota, Ukrainian American Community, Community Center, and to our Ukrainian partners, the Kiev Security Forum and the Center for Civic Liberties. I appreciate the support of the Ukrainian Women's Fund that made possible to come one of our speakers right from Ukraine. And I thank the promotion uh, to the organizations, the Committee on Foreign Relations Minnesota, East-West Connections, the United Nations Association of Minnesota, and War Without Genocide. Uh, for opening this event, I would like to invite the Dean of the Humphrey School, uh, Dr. Nisha Bochway. Dr. Nisha, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you for hosting the event. Thank you for our partnership and for your hospitality. Yes, thank you, Irma. And welcome everyone. I'm Nisha Bochway. I'm the Dean here at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. As we gather here today to discuss the crucial topic of rebuilding Ukraine, I'm deeply honored to welcome you all on behalf of Global Minnesota and our school. This event, Rebuilding Ukraine, a future of resilience and renewal, couldn't be more timely or vital. Before we dive into the main theme of uh, rebuilding, um, it's crucial to understand that even as Ukraine continues to endure the ravages of war, the planning for rebuilding must begin now. We cannot wait for the war to end we must lay the groundwork today for a clear path to recovery for tomorrow. My background as a planner, specializing in urban planning and public health, is shaped by a rich tapestry of professional and personal experiences. 
Raised in a lower middle income country of Jamaica and having served as a tenured professor of city and regional planning at Georgia Tech, I've witnessed the incredible resilience of communities across various landscapes. My Jamaican roots and academic endeavors have taught me the immense power of resilient communities and the vital need for equitable, thoughtful planning. Together, they form the cornerstone of sustainable environments where everyone can flourish, even amidst, amidst adversity. As we shift our focus to Ukraine, a nation wrestling with a turmoil of conflict and devastation, we must embrace this rebuilding task with heartfelt compassion, innovative spirit, and an unwavering dedication to equity, sustainability, health, and well-being for everyone there. The road ahead is daunting, involving not just the reconstruction of infrastructure, but also addressing the deep-seated humanitarian needs of the Ukrainian populace. Yet amidst these challenges lies an opportunity to not only rebuild, but to reimagine a future of resilience and renewal. By harnessing the collective expertise of our distinguished speakers and panelists, we can chart a path forward that prioritizes human dignity, justice, and the well being of all Ukrainians. I am particularly honored to welcome our special guests. Their tireless efforts in championing democracy and human rights serve as an inspiration to us all. Their insights will enrich our discussion and shed light on the complexities of Ukraine's path to recovery. And of course, I must take a moment to acknowledge our moderator, Marina, a Humphrey International Fellow. Marina's presence here today amidst the turmoil of war in her homeland is a testament to her unwavering commitment to leadership and learning. They go hand in hand. Thank you, Irina. Her sacrifice and dedication inspires us all. We are grateful for her invaluable contributions to this discussion. I also want to extend a deep appreciation to all of the Humphrey International Fellows. Where are you? Just like wave your hand or snap, are you in the room? There, They gave up their seats, everybody. They're over here on the side. Thank you all for being here. Their presence enriches our global policy discussions here in the Humphrey School, and we are thankful for them. The fellowship program dedicated to international cooperation and public service epitomizes the values of solidarity and collaboration that are essential in addressing the challenges facing Ukraine and the world. As we embark on this journey together, let us remain guided by the values of compassion, solidarity, and hope. It is through our collective efforts and unwavering resolve that we can build a future defined not by the scars of conflict, not by the scars of conflict, but by the boundless possibilities of resilience and renewal. Thank you. Thank you, Dean, for uh, 
welcoming remarks. And now I would like to give the floor to Phil Hanson, the president of Global Minnesota, the main partner of this event. Thank you for your support and for making this event possible. All right, thank you. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you all with us today. Uh, we are, I think, over 120 in the room and 150 online from all over the world joining us for the program today. We're just I'm so happy that you could be a part of the program and the discussion that we're about to have. It wouldn't be, of course, a possible or possible to put an event like this together without great partners. We're very thankful uh, to the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, to the Kiev Security Forum, to Urena and her strong efforts to make this happen, and the great speakers and panelists that are with us today. Can we just give them all a quick round of applause? And as I said, I most, most importantly want to thank all of you for attending this important event. Um, we can begin where we can begin to understand and envision the challenges that will be faced and the strategies that will be needed to support post-war future for Ukraine. Global Minnesota's mission is to advance international understanding and engagement. Over the past year, Global Minnesota has led or supported a number of programs to help increase our understanding and connection to the Ukrainian people and the suffering and challenges inflicted by this terrible war. Two particular events that we did this year that really stuck out for me, we had a chance to have a former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, join us with a series of programs that really helped to illustrate what was happening in Ukraine. And we also hosted a delegation here of prosthetics experts from Ukraine here to increase their understanding and capacity um, to be able to do the things that they have to do to help physically devastated people in Ukraine as well. We're so proud to have been part of those programs and to be able to support um, their, their needs and their success um, as they go forward. As we approach the second anniversary of this conflict and Ukraine continues its courageous fight for sovereignty and for democracy, Many are now looking towards the long-term strategies for the country's security, recovery, and rebuilding. We appreciate the opportunity to be a partner in today's program and that you have joined us to increase your understanding of the current situation and participate in the conversation regarding the rebuilding and the future of Ukraine. Before I begin, I just want to take one minute to give you just a little more on Global Minnesota. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, again, advancing international understanding and engagement. We really serve as a gathering place for people to come together to discuss shared solutions to global problems. We have a host of different programming. We do that through including our world affairs programs, our professional exchanges, our great decisions, discussion groups, our K through 12 education programs, our international student programs, and a host of others. If you'd like to learn more, there's materials on the back table. You can learn more about what's involved because what really drives Global Minnesota is our members. How many Global Minnesota members in the room today? Big thank you to all of you for your support and your engagement. Encourage you to talk to people around you about Global Minnesota and encourage them to be a part of our programs as well. I also want to acknowledge that our board chair, uh, Ambassador Ross Wilson is with us today. Um, Ross is over here. He'd be happy to answer questions as well. So um, thank you, Ross, for joining us too. We have a series of upcoming events um, that we have available to you. You'll see them on the back table. We have a SDG roundtables, um, Sustainable Development Goals Roundtable, Resiliency and a Water Challenge World coming up. We have a Get to Know Global Minnesota event coming up. And importantly to all of you in the room that uh, heard about the event today, we have a culture through cuisine at the uh, Ethiopian restaurant called Bole. And we did offer that uh, one lucky raffle a winner would be able to come with us to that event for free. So I'm going to uh, allow Eric here to maybe make, why don't you make the choice too, so it doesn't look like I did anything biased in all of this, Eric. You pull out. Should I stand up? I probably yeah, stand, stand up. up. You can have one of our panelists grab it if you'd like to, however you want to do it. Oh, there. I think I'll have it. There we go. 
Thank you. You have your raffle tickets handy. The number is 173-8522. 173-8522. If you want to see Erin uh, in the back there afterwards, she'll help you get that figured out as well. So thank you again for everyone for being here. Check out our other events. Um, again, thank you to everyone for participating in what is truly an important program uh, for all of us to learn from, engage with, and better understand the needs going forward for Ukraine. And I want to invite Urena back to, up to the podium again to continue the program. Thank you. Thank you, Queen. Thank you. And now we are going to have the special address from our guests from Ukraine. And I will give the floor to Mr. Arseniy Yatsenyuk, who is uh, uh, former prime minister in Ukraine and now the head of the Kyiv Security Forum. Uh, the former prime minister uh, led the government in 2014, 2016, and has started the vital, very important reforms for Ukraine that became a part of Ukrainian sustainability right now in this most uh, challenging times in our history. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky to be in his team and um, I enjoy, I, I, I invite you to uh, listen to his remarks. Mr. Prime Minister, the floor is yours. Thank you, Irina, and thank you, the Dean, and uh, uh, good morning to all fellows and to all folks. Well, it's actually evening in Kyiv, in Ukraine, so it's a great honor for me to address you, and uh, I am really grateful for you to for hosting this kind of event. So uh, uh, the topic was how to rebuild Ukraine. Let me put it this way. Uh, my guess is that we need to focus on three separate issues. The first one and the most important and outstanding issue is how to save Ukraine. The second one is how to build a new Ukraine, actually from the scratch. And the third one is how to rebuild the global order, which is in a absolute disarray right now. Uh, let me just remind you that we are to commemorate not the second, but the 10th anniversary of Russian invasion into Ukraine. So 10 years ago, Russia illegally annexed a part of Ukraine, which is Crimea, and sent its military and proxies to the eastern part of Ukraine. Two years ago, dictator and war criminal Putin decided to launch a full-fledged invasion. It was a kind of Hitler-style blitzkrieg, what Putin anticipated, to take over an entire Ukraine, including capital Kyiv and actually to absorb Ukraine and to restore the Soviet Union and new spheres of interest in this world. Due to the courageous Ukrainian men and women in the uniform and actually to the entire Ukrainian society, we managed to survive. And due to unwavering support of the United States and the entire free world, that's what Putin didn't expect. He expected that the, that the free wealth is in the decline. He expected that the free wealth is in the decadence. But he completely miscalculated. So as of now, Ukrainian people 
together with the, with the Western world, managed to repel Putin. And Putin was actually uh, on the route. But uh, today we are approaching a critical juncture. And uh, I really commend the US Senate, both Democrats and particularly 22 Republicans that few hours ago decided to pass a foreign aid package, both for Ukraine and for Israel. And I do believe that uh, uh, folks sitting in the House will do the same and pass the legislation which is desperately needed for Ukraine. As what is happening right now in Ukraine, it's not just the fight between the democracy and autocracy. Because we as Ukraine are at the forefront of the democracy, fighting for the values of the free world. It is more for us as for the Ukrainian people. For us, this is an existential question. I don't know whether you saw this uh, kind of, sorry to be blunt, but uh, uh, rap that uh, uh, war criminal Putin said to commentator Tucker Carlson. Because uh, uh, I'm not sure that this is about journalism. Journalism is far from that. Uh, 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 if this is the journalism, I am just wondering why Tucker Carlson didn't ask a uh, war criminal Putin about uh, uh, the war crimes that he has committed about uh, 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 the crimes against humanity, what happened in Mariupol, in, in, in Irpin, in Bucha, uh, uh, why Russian military rape Ukrainian women, uh, why Russian military actually assassinates and kills innocent people, and why actually uh, war criminal Putin, who is under the ICC, International Criminal Court, arrest warrant, waged this war against an independent state. But Putin was very clear, reiterating his, reiterating his message, and the message is absolutely clear. He wants to annihilate Ukraine as a nation, Ukraine as a state, and to grab and to absorb the land of an independent country. So we need to pass this test. I mean, we as the free world, and the United States is a flagship. Uh, the decision of the President Biden and, and, and the bipartisan uh, support that we gained in the United States, it's not just about Ukraine, the, the decision to support Ukraine. It is more. It is to support and defend the free world. And it is actually these kind of decisions placed directly into the national security interests of the United States as a new axis of evil already emerged which is Russia, Iran, North Korea. And let me remind you that both Iran and North Korea, they are under international sanctions. But despite this, look what's happening, for example, in, in Ukraine. They are sending drones made in Iran. They are launching ballistic missiles made in North Korea. And uh, all these axes of evil got an additional support from different countries, including China. So once again, for me, uh, the thing that we need to save Ukraine is not just to save Ukraine, which is of crucial importance for me as for Ukrainian, but to save an entire free world, to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, I am not sure that we need to invent a bicycle, okay? The United States already invented this bicycle. And I want to address directly to the U.S. leadership and to you as the young leaders. 
After the Second World War, the United States saved Europe under the Marshall Plan. So we have the recipe. We, we know how to do and how to make it. So I believe that this time, the United States and the European Union that had been saved by the United States must save Ukraine and the entire free world. Uh, let me put it in a nutshell uh, on, on, on another few aspects, how to rebuild the global order. No doubt that we need to reshuffle and uh, uh, to revamp the United Nations. Because, uh, for example, Russia always abuses its veto power. But uh, for me, uh, one of the basic pillars or the bedrocks of the global order is NATO, which is no longer obsolete, and the members of NATO are not delinquent, and the European Union. Uh, so in order to rebuild and restore the global order, you as a young and new leaders must have guts, political will, and you must have to be bold. Not bold like me, but just bold, strong. Um, I believe that democracy will prevail. I strongly believe in this. I believe that Ukraine is to prevail. And uh, the language that uh, uh, the free world is to uh, stand with Ukraine for as long as it stakes. And then a new uh, uh, um, quote that uh, the world is to stand uh, with Ukraine as long as we can. Uh, I am not sure this really fits into the reality. The free world has to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes for Ukraine to prevail in this war. And I am absolutely sure that, yes, we can. We can and we will win. So I wish you good luck. I wish you all the best. And uh, I strongly believe that the new leaders of this world will both save the world and already saved Ukraine will help to do this. And we have a huge experience to share with you. And uh, I still believe that the world is to face a bright future. So thank you and take care, folks. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. And I will share with you that uh, just lately, the former Prime Minister has shared the article, 10 points from realists. Uh, I encourage you to, to read this article, but I thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for being not only realist, but also optimist. Thank you for sharing these remarks. And now uh, I'm giving the floor to Ukrainian human rights activist, Ukrainian human rights lawyer, and the head of Ukraine's Nobel Prize Peace Winning Center of Civic Liberties, Alexandra Madvichu. Alexandra has many, many years of experience as a human rights activist. She works with the people who have gone through war crimes. Uh, she also uh, established the uh, initiative Tribunal for Putin uh, to document international crimes under the Rome Statute of International Criminal Court. And uh, last year, uh, in 2022, she was recognized as one of the 25 most influential women in the world by the Financial Times. Alexandra, thank you for joining us this evening from Ukraine and the floor is yours. Thank you very much for providing me a floor. It's a huge honor for me to address to this distinguished audience. 
Our event is devoted to rebuilding Ukraine, the future of resilience and renewal. And I would like to express my, my reflection about rebuilding and renewal as well as about resilience. When we speak um, about rebuilding of Ukraine, first of all, people imagine the restoration of destroyed buildings, roads, bridges, and other objects of civil infrastructure. This is important and essential, but people affected by this war has to be one of the priority of the recovery process. When large-scale invasion started, we united our efforts with dozens of organizations through different regions. We built national network of documentators and we have an ambitious goal to document each criminal episode which was committed in a smaller settlement in each oblast in Ukraine. And working together, just for these two years of large-scale invasion, we jointly documented and contributed into our Tribunal for Putin database more than 62,000 episodes of war crimes. And 62,000, it's a huge amount, but just a tip of iceberg, because this is a conscience policy of Russian state. Russia uses war crimes as the methods of war fear. Russia attempts to break people resistance and occupy Ukraine by the tool which I call the immense pain of civilian population. So we not just document violations of Geneva and Hague conventions, we document human pain. And I work with people affected by this war directly. And I know that in addition to restore their broken lives, broken families, broken vision of the future, they need to restore their broken belief that justice is possible, even though delaying in time. And that is why we record these crimes. So sooner or later, all Russians who committed these crimes by their own hands, as well as Putin and top political leadership and high military command will be brought to justice. And now we face with a accountability gap because there is no international court who can prosecute Putin and his surrounding for the crime of aggression, for their leadership decision to plan, to initiate, and to start this war. Even International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over these crimes in situation of Russian's wars against Ukraine. But all atrocities which we now documenting its results of this leadership decision. And this is also a common logic. If we want to stop wars in the world, we have to prosecute state and their leaders who start such wars. And in the whole history of humankind, we have only one precedent, and it was Nuremberg trials after the Second World War. But it was victorious trials, the trials where Nazi war criminals were tried only after Nazi regime had collapsed. But we live in a new century, and I strongly believe that our task as a humankind and to make justice independent on when and how this war will end. We cannot wait. We must establish such a tribunal now and hold Putin, Lukashenko, and top political leadership and high military command of Russia accountable. When we speak about renewal, 
we have to return to the point, as Mr. Arsenyuk mentioned before, that this is not just a war between two states. This is a war between two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. And with this war, Putin tried to convince the entire world that democracy, rule of law, and human rights are fake values because they couldn't protect you during the war. With this war, Putin tried to convince the entire world that state with a strong military potential and nuclear weapon can break international order, can dictate their rules of the game to entire international community, and even forcibly change internationally recognized borders. And if Russia succeeds, it will encourage other authoritarian leaders in the world to do the same. We live in very turbulent times. The whole UN system of peace and security is collapsing before our eyes. They can't protect people against authoritarianism and the worse. And this means that it's our joint responsibility to start a cardinal reform of international system. And the first such step has to be to exclude Russia from Security Council of UN. And several words about resilience, because in such a turbulent times, you always think on what you can rely on, because if you can't rely on legal instrument, on the international system of peace and security, you have to remember that even in such situation, you can always still rely on people. And we used to think through the categories of states and interstate organizations, but ordinary people have a much greater impact than they can even imagine. When large-scale invasion started, international organizations evacuated their personnel, but ordinary people remained and started to do extraordinary things. It were ordinary people who took people out from the ruined cities who helped to survive under artillery's fires, who broke through the encirclement to provide humanitarian aid. And suddenly it became obvious that ordinary people fighting for their freedom and for their human dignity are more powerful than even the second army in the world. And what these lessons learn tell to us that in this war, we are fighting for something which have no limitation in national borders. Freedom is such things, as well as human solidarity. And that is why we rely on your support, because only spread of freedom make our world safer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra, for sharing your thoughts. Me personally, I was every time impressed by, by your, your sharing your thoughts that you document, document the pain uh, in your human rights work. And, and another uh, impressive remark from you is, and we should re uh, remember that, is that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. Thank you again for your contribution. And now we have a special video address that was prepared uh, for our event from the US Senator, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, she 
wouldn't be here. She couldn't join because she has hard work to do in the Senate right now. But she recorded the message for us, and here we are. Hello to all my friends at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Thank you for hosting this important discussion. You know I love the Humphrey School. It's actually where I had my wedding reception. So for me, it's romantic. Um, and I've done a lot of work there, spoken at so many of the commencements, and it was great to meet with this year's class of Humphrey Fellows in Washington just last week. So now to a more serious topic. As we approach the two-year anniversary of Vladimir Putin's unprovoked, unlawful, unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine, this event could not be more timely. Right now, as you know, the Senate is debating, the Congress is debating a national security package that would bring critical aid to Ukraine, humanitarian aid across the world. I cannot tell you how important it is right now. Russia is firing off about 10,000 rounds of ammunition a day. Ukraine has about 2,000. Europe has, has promised billions and billions of dollars, has delivered, taking in refugees, allies from Japan to South Korea, helping out. And that is why it's so important we do that now. Because if we don't do anything, Vladimir Putin is just going to march right in there, and he could just keep marching into a NATO country. The battle for Ukraine is a battle for democracy itself, and we must continue to stand with Ukraine against Putin's unlawful, unprovoked, unjustifiable war. I have been to Ukraine twice in the last few years, also to the border in Poland right after the invasion to meet with our troops. I will never forget that day. It was shortly after the invasion started and we saw people fleeing from Ukraine indelibly marked in my mind will be the grandma in the wheelchair being pushed over the border forced to leave the only home she ever knew the little kids with nothing but backpacks filled with their stuffed animals but just as vladimir putin has shown his true colors raising cities to the ground slaughtering innocents abusing um, all kinds of worlds of internet the rules of international order abducting children the Ukrainian people have shown their true colors, defending their democracy in brilliant blue and yellow. They have succeeded, even taken back some territory because of their unbreakable resolve, but also because countries across the globe, as far away as Japan and South Korea, Ukraine's neighbors in Europe, the US and Canada have stood with them. Now is not the time to give up. The Ukrainians have been on the front lines, the chef cooking meals for troops, the nurse who traded in her scrubs for camo and now serves as a field medic, the martial arts teacher leading an 11-man recon unit to keep his village safe. As President Zelensky said on the first day of the invasion, when he went down to the street corner, when the whole world, every pundit had counted him out, he said the simple words, we are here. He said that for his own people, but he said it for the world's democracies. We are here. So that's why this national security package is so important right now. I would have liked it to include the emergency authority for the president at our own borders. I would like it to have included the technology and the incredible work that could have been done to stop the flow of fentanyl. But we are where we are. And now we need to get this done. I know this is not the end of our effort, and I will continue fighting against 
everything that wants to stop a democracy like Ukraine from being a democracy. And I think it's really important as you hear this argument, maybe this will pass by the time you see this video, but it still needs support in the House. It's important to know that our European allies have stepped up their support. The British Prime Minister visited Ukraine in January and promised to increase funding to over $3 billion by next year. We have numerous European countries. Uh, Finland has given Ukraine over $2 billion in aid since the fighting began. Uh, we have 40 countries that have taken in 8 million refugees, millions of them in Poland alone. Everyone is doing their part to have the backs of Ukraine. The question before us, as Vladimir Putin seeks to wipe Ukraine off the map and could easily march right into the next country, the question is, will America answer the call of the Ukrainian people? To me, it's not a question, it's a must. We must say, as President Zelensky said on that day of the invasion, three simple words, we are here. The Senate passing this funding is the first step in the process. Get it over to the House. We know President Biden wants to sign it into law. I will keep fighting until we get this done. Thank you. Well, thank you to the Senator for this important message. And now we are going to the second part of uh, of our discussion. Thank you, uh, uh, our keynote speakers, for the contribution that will build the valuable um, for their insights for uh, that will be valuable for the further discussions. Now we are going to the panel, and uh, I would uh, remind you that we have the options to, for Q and A. You can. Take the uh, you can write the questions and give it to me. I will be happy to put it to the panelists. And we will start with our first panelist, Eric Schwartz, who is chair, global policy chair at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Uh, he uh, served as a president of Refugees International. Before that, he was U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. He also had uh, the position at the UN High Commissioner, in the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva. He also served at the National Security Council at the White House. Eric, from your perspective, share your thoughts about what's, wh how is your take on the situation in Ukraine and what are the steps for rebuilding? Floor is yours. Oh, up to you, you can. Well, I've. I jotted down some remarks, so I think I'll, I'll come up. It's just about five minutes. If that, is that okay? Um, well, thank you. And boy, these uh, comments were so inspiring. Um, I was uh, president of Refugees International uh, in at the time of the latest uh, Russian invasion. And we were there in March, weeks after the um, after the invasion, and came back and wrote a report. And, I think was we were one of the first, if not the first, uh, reporting organization that that asserted that we were comfortable the assertion that uh, the Russians were responsible for crimes against uh, humanity uh, in Ukraine. Um, I think the the framing of the former prime minister, save, rebuild, uh, and rebuild uh, the world order, was a, is 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 a good frame. Um, and it's a good way to think about uh, this challenge. Uh, the situation in Ukraine is really just another demonstration of the reality that we live 
in a world that is beset with injustice. The Russian invasion uh, is just another indication, if another indication is really needed, um, that actions in the relationship between states are guided not by uh, broadly accepted international law, rules of behavior, in particular rules against law, against aggression, and against war that is neither authorized by the Security Council nor justifiable as an act of self-defense. Rather, Ukraine is evidence that in the international order, uh, unbridled and unrestrained power uh, all too often continues to be the coin of the realm. Power, the ability to use military force and industrial and economic might to coerce others into continued submission or into actions that they would not willingly adopt, uh, or power simply exercised in violation of international humanitarian law. Um, when it happens in Gaza, in Burma, in Darfur, in Ukraine, uh, it can wreak havoc and destroy lives. Um, the UN's Office of, for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs uh, has reports that there are, these are numbers, but numbers worth envisioning, over 17 million Ukrainians in Ukraine in humanitarian need. Some 3.7 million who are internally displaced, forced from their homes and within their borders, within the borders of their own country. Beyond that, other countries in Europe are hosting, estimates vary, some 6 million refugees. And the impact, uh, the, the urgent needs are in the many, many billions of dollars. OCHA citing the armed conflict location and event data project reports more than 47,000 incidents uh, last year that involved armed clashes and other attacks, uh, which represented a significant escalation over the prior year. I think as I, as I utter these words, think about the rebuilding challenge. The destruction has been devastating. It has impacted all parts of the country, uh, and in particular, the East and the South. OCHA fur further reports that in frontline communities, including communities under occupation, the situation is reaching, and if I may quote the UN uh, uh, office, severe and catastrophic levels, water, food, shelter, fuel, and on and on and on are extremely limited with the effects on both adults and children uh, and with devastating impacts on infrastructure. Um, so that represents a recovery challenge, which in some ways is, is, is certainly connected to, but independent of a broader and long-term reconstruction challenge. As, as my former organization, Refugees International, has noted, there's substantial capacity of local Ukrainian organizations to deliver aid. And while there is much more that the international community must do to pr promote localization of the aid effort, this news is, in dire circumstances, encouraging. Of course, it's a sad tragedy that we can talk, we're talking about localization efforts in the context of this dreadful environment, but localization, which reflects a worldwide campaign 
uh, toward meaningful agency for local populations is um, a critically important tool as we think about the prospects of rebuilding. Um, on saving Ukraine, before I close, an unequivocal and complete Russian defeat is not, is not impossible to imagine. And it would be, a, in this circumstance, a wonderful outcome, but it is uncertain at best uh, and unlikely at worst. Um, uh, that observation is independent of the comments about the importance of justice, whether that's in a number of days, a number of weeks, a number of months, a number of years, or in some cases, decades, um, as we have seen. Um, it's also, that comment is also made, you know, from someone who was in uh, East Berlin just before the fall of the Berlin Wall and listening to so many experts talk about how unlikely, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, dissolution of uh, the Soviet empire was. So um, everything I say, I say with that, with an awareness of, of, of that uncertainty. Um, and at the same time, notwithstanding the idiotic statements about Euro European security uh, from Donald Trump, at this point, he is the likely Republican nominee. The, su the support of the West, and more importantly, the resolve of the Ukrainian people, uh, I believe, make it very unlikely that Putin's war of conquest uh, uh, could succeed in the manner that he has envisioned. But the willingness of the Russian president to persevere will create continued suffering of the Ukrainian people. That we know. That's why, to my mind, the United States and Western allies should be pursuing three courses of, of action simultaneously. The Biden administration, European allies, have to do everything possible to communicate that military support for Ukraine will continue. And in light of the positions or posture uh, articulated by some members of the Republican Party, European governments must be unequivocal that while U.S. engagement is critical, European support does not hinge on what the United States may or may not do. This will, this combination of actors, actions will help put Ukraine in the strongest position if and when real peace negotiations can take place. Second, the U.S. must engage the government of Ukraine and work with the government's cooperation to prepare for peace negotiations. Even if as a public matter, the president, President Biden and President Zelensky are, are not prepared to seriously consider uh, Putin's latest offer that is well, not really serious. Um, uh, but one cannot discount the possibility of change, a possibility that will only increase, will only increase with the most forceful indications of US support. And finally, as several analysts have suggested, um, and it's inevitably, uh, we have to at least think about if we're responsible policymakers and planners about the possibility of a frozen conflict, one in which the border issues are not fully resolved, but, but, but are, not, are not resolved. Uh, but there is a degree of stability and most importantly, less in violence, a stability that might offer a diminution of killing and offer the possibility of a rebuilding process and articulation of stronger connections between 
the West and Ukraine. What the terms of such an arrangement might be are well beyond the scope of my thoughts, uh, but they're grounded in a long-held appreciation that in international relations and in issues of humanitarianism and human rights, the best uh, outcome may be a choice between very suboptimal alternatives. As that has been true in places I've mentioned, um, Darfur, uh, Burma, Palestine, um, uh, it may also be the case in Ukraine, as I read these words, it's not really what I meant to say. I'm not, what, what, this, the suboptimal positive outcomes have, 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 have been arrived at in many places. I mean, East Timor and my own personal experience is one uh, that I can think of. Uh, and, um, and, but there, those suboptimal outcomes need not, must not walk away from basic humanitarian principles. And the more I think about Timor, the more I think that that is the example I should have used. More importantly, they must continue to vindicate principles of human rights and justice. Thank you, Eric, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you for ideas we can take uh, while we are still fighting and take to think about for our future. And now I would like to give the floor to Professor Fionula Niaolai. Uh, Fionula, I would call you friend. Uh, I enjoy uh, uh, conversations with Fionula from time to time, and every time I'm so inspired of what Fionula is sharing with me back from the North Ireland experience, but also from her time being the UN, uh, the Special Rapporteur at the UN Human Rights Council, uh, Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms while Countering Terrorism. Fionula just... Uh, ended this uh, term uh, last November. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you all. I'm really delighted to be here. Particular thanks to Irina and my co-panelists for this event. Um, I had the great privilege to travel to Ukraine in December and I spent four days in Lviv. I got my little button there. <laughs> Um, I was there to acknowledge the 75th anniversary of the uh, creation of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the Genocide Convention, both of those foundational treaties having a deep association with that city as both men who were foundational to these documents, Hirsch Lauterpacht for the UDHR and Raphael Lemkin were born close to Lviv, attended the university and um, the city is forever associated with them. But my visit gave me a really close view of the bravery of the Ukrainian people, uh, but also the challenges that are faced day by day. And I think the scale of the challenges require us to think about the day after. It's really hard to think about the day after when you're in the middle of war and when MiG-16 bombings are happening and you have a, a little, your phone goes off a couple of times a day to tell you to go to shelter. But it is absolutely critical that we think about the day after. Um, a transition from war to peace, which actually holds, is critical. And those that hold require a deep investment in advance, not at the day when you get to the table, as Eric knows well, but it requires deep 
extensive and I should say painful legwork to be done in advance. And that's way beyond the pivotal signing moments. And it has to happen as the war is ongoing. The average length of success for a peace agreement is five years, statistically. Most of them don't last very long. And so if they're going to last, they have to be embedded in this sustained thinking, structuring, positioning, inclusion, um, and conversation, which has to happen both within a society, but actually has to happen outside, because the success of any peace process uh, is always going to be dependent on the partners who support it, the, in, the willingness of the international community to stick with it, and most importantly, the intent to pay for it. And frankly, the international community is very good on the signing day and the pictures on the White House lawn and absolutely dismal at the long term because we run in four-year cycles. And in fact, many around the world, including the Russian Federation, do not. And so it's our understanding, and I say this from a context of having been closely engaged in the Northern Ireland peace process, requires profound, long-term, deep commitment and deep, deep pockets. Second thing I would say is that um, the planning for peace requires inclusion. And for a comprehensive peace to hold, it has to be inclusive. And we learned this in Northern Ireland when all parties had to be at the table. And that includes people that were called terrorists for 30 years. You cannot make peace with yourself. You have to make peace with your adversary. And that means sitting down with people who've harmed you. It means sitting down with people who've done the worst thing to you, who have destroyed your cities, who've killed people you love, and be prepared to make peace with them. And that is a really painful choice. And it also means that you have to have compromise. And it's really hard in an ongoing war to think about compromise, because compromise seems like the very opposite of the thing that you're fighting for. And actually you have to hold these two things at the same time. You have to hold the capacity of engaging to defend the things that are important to you with the realities that you're going to have to plan for compromise. And as part of that process, one of the things I particularly wanna stress, and Irina and I have talked a lot about this, is that generally peace processes, wars are fought mostly by men, and peace processes are made by mostly men at the table, and they're mostly very unsuccessful. And so I would just think about Afghanistan as the prime example. But one of the things that distinguished my own peace process is that a bunch of very, very, very agile and difficult women, who Marina has met, um, were prepared to say that they had to be at the negotiating table. And that was women from all sides of the country. It required, and it required women who had complex histories, as most difficult women do. And so I would say that one of the key shifts in a successful peace process, consistent with UN Security Council Resolution 1325, is the inclusion of women in all parts of the process from the very earliest point. And again, I don't think these deals hold if you don't have everyone at the table. And actually, they generally don't hold, for sure, when you don't have women in the process. And um, the third thing I'd say is that 
in order to solve, we spend a lot of time, if you look at most peace agreements and it's part of the academic work I do, they mostly focus on things like ceasefires, ending of violence, political and civil guarantees. The thing that most peace processes don't do well is address the under economic underpinnings of war and the economic necessities and rights that have to be guaranteed. And with colleagues in Northern Ireland, we have demonstrated over the years that the fundamental fault line in most peace agreements is actually the failure to plan for the economic and to make economic, social and cultural rights a comprehensive part of peace agreements. And again, if we're gonna plan, we have to plan for that. This economic requirement also requires the willingness I go back to the willingness to pay. And I will say the West is consistently unreliable in this regard. We are not willing to pay for the things we say we care about. We talk about human rights. The least funded part of the UN is human rights. The most funded part of the UN these days is things like counterterrorism that I used to work in. So actually, we can use these fancy words about peace and what we're willing to pay for, but we're not prepared to pay for it. And until we have a fundamental shift and until we're prepared to pay for the things we say we care about, and we will end up, as Eric talked about, in the land of frozen conflicts and unsustainable peace, which we see in multiple places around the world. And it would be, I think, preferable that Ukraine avoid that, that fate. Finally, let me fo focus on accountability. And there's rightly been a focus on criminal accountability, including the International Criminal Court and special discussions of the special tribunal. But I just wanna say that right now, the discussion on accountability on Ukraine is deeply marred by a failure to talk about accountability in the conflict that's happening in Gaza and Israel. And these two things may not appear to be connected, but the support of the world for the context of Ukraine is dripping away on the continent of Africa and in many other parts of the world because of the failure to apply our standards equally. And if we don't apply the rules equally, this broader project that we are engaged in in supporting Ukraine is not on a good bet because states see and smell a double standard when they see it. And that is fundamentally hindering our capacity to bring about a just peace in Ukraine, as well as to address a just and long lasting peace in the Middle East. So on accountability, let me just say, we talk about criminal accountability. I have a whole bunch of my students here today, but I just want to remind us all, even in the best case scenario, whether that is Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia, where Eric and I have both spent considerable periods of time, at best, you're going to try a couple of hundred people. In, in, in former Yugoslavia, it's just over a hundred. Criminal law is not going to do the work that needs to be done. I know that that's not a popular view, but it's just true. It's not to say it's not important, but we put far too many eggs in that basket. And it is, I just want to say, almost impossible to convict a head of state of anything. Think of Kenya and the ICC. So I would say to us that we need to be thinking about some other thing. In particular, we need to be thinking about transitional justice. We have to deal with truth. We have to address truth telling. We have to address um, guarantees of non-repetition. And we have to have a really painful conversation about amnesty. And in no conflict that I have ever been in, negotiated a way out of or stuck with for the long term, has amnesty not been part of that conversation. And it will have to be part of the discussion in Ukraine. So let me close by saying um, the last thing is that peace is slow. 
In Northern Ireland last week, we finally got, a go after 30 years of a peace process, we just finally got a government running, so, sort of. We'll see how long they last. And so the point is that it's 30 years on from that glorious day outside of our storm and parliament where it looked like we had a peace agreement and we are still struggling to make the basics work. So anybody who thinks that peace happens fast is wrong. Solid, hard-won peace processes take a really long time to bed in. And so for Ukraine, even if we get peace, all of us will have to be committed to the long haul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. I hope you got the same inspiration I get every time we have the conversation with you. Thank you for talking about the complicated issues we all should think uh, even now. Now I would like to give the floor to my another friend, Professor, uh, Associated Professor at the Department of Political Science, uh, Kathleen Collins. Uh, Kathleen, from academic perspective and from the political perspective, Share with us your thoughts on what's going on and how the rebuilding of Ukraine should be done. The floor is yours. Good morning. Thank you to the Humphrey School, to my Ukrainian colleagues, and particularly to Irina for organizing this incredibly important and timely panel. The scope of rebuilding Ukraine is vast, so I can only offer a few brief points for further discussion here today. First, we cannot underestimate the significance of rebuilding Ukraine, no matter how great the scope. It seems like it shouldn't have to be necessary to say this, but in the context of American politics today, I think it is. Ukraine's survival and rebuilding, which are intimately intertwined, um, are a matter uh, that affects the lives of over 40 million Ukrainians. Ukraine's survival and rebuilding also directly affect the security of Europe and the endurance of the liberal international order that has fostered economic prosperity and liberty democracy since 1945. And let's not forget that Ukraine's rebuilding also affects the food security of the global south. Too many Americans and Europeans wrapped up in their domestic political battles and worried about rising inflation have lost sight of this big issue. Two years ago, Russia launched the largest war since Nazi Germany began World War II. And since then, Russia has committed countless crimes against humanity. And as the former prime minister pointed out, 10 years ago, Russia actually launched this war. It's just that most of the West wasn't paying attention. From the moral implications to the geopolitical ones, we should all care about Ukrainian survival and rebuilding. Second, where and how should rebuilding begin? Today, although 82% of Ukraine remains unoccupied, the damage, as our Ukrainian colleagues will no doubt tell us in greater detail, the damage across the country is staggering. The World Bank recently estimated that rebuilding would cost at least $411 billion. That sum may well grow and is likely to grow as Russia's devastating war of attrition continues. Nonetheless, the Ukrainian central and local government and civil society organizations have already identified critical areas. 
that are in need and they're, they're working on a comprehensive online database to track damage throughout the country. They're engaging in this process already. Priority sectors, of course, include energy and infrastructure and health. We've all seen countless photos of Ukrainian maternity clinics that have been intentionally targeted by the Russian government. And of course, it involves extensive demining, which is absolutely essential, not only on a humanitarian level, but for economic recovery and rebuilding. Education should be an immediate priority as well. Nearly 4,000 schools have been destroyed or severely damaged by Russian aerial attacks, artillery shelling, rocket strikes, and even cluster munitions. Nearly half of Ukrainian school-age children, refugee children, are not receiving a formal education at all today. Millions of IDP children have um, uh, inadequate or subpar access to education. Even those children away from the front lines are learning in what are called now subway schools underground, where they are forced online because learning um, into online learning like Zoom because of regular intentional attacks by the Russian government on civilian targets like schools. I think we all know from COVID, our experience with COVID in the West, that online learning is extraordinarily detrimental to a child's ed education. I have three of my own in grade school throughout COVID, and uh, I've known what the effects of that can be. So imagine trying to learn by Zoom in a subway station um, or from your home uh, for, for an ongoing period of time. It's devastating to the younger generation. Rebuilding education has an immediate impact on the lives of the younger generation. Education is also essential for preserving Ukrainian identity. Talk to anyone in the Baltics. I spent much of last year in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and they will tell you that education was absolutely essential to preserving their identity during the Soviet period and after the Soviet period. And it's essential to rebuilding the economy. Both education, uh, both uh, identity and the economy are the foundation really of Ukraine's future. Third, I'd like to say a brief word about corruption. As a realist, I know corruption is always a risk with international aid. I've worked extensively in uh, Tajikistan, for example, uh, in the wake of the civil war. In fact, skeptics continually argue that Western funds to Ukraine are likely to line the pockets of corrupt officials. They've used the same argument for not giving military aid and humanitarian aid. Some even draw parallels to Afghanistan where aid notoriously went awry for over two decades. But make no mistake, despite the problems with corruption in the past, Ukraine is not Afghanistan. In fact, the Ukrainian government draft recovery plan has may already made anti-corruption measures a central component of recovery, just as they have been a central component of the war effort. We've seen the Zelensky government prosecute officials for corruption throughout the war. The plan takes measures to simultaneously strengthen oversight and, trans and transparency of the aid dollars that are spent. It prioritizes creating a strong legal and judicial framework and corporate governance in line with EU requirements. And it prioritizes reform of law enforcement agencies, which as we know in post-Soviet states is, is absolutely essential. In short, Ukraine is actively taking the necessary steps already for the effective rebuilding of a cleaner, more democratic government that fosters long-term growth as an EU member. Fourth, how do we finance rebuilding or who should pay? As Vanilla uh, just, just uh, uh, bluntly told us, right? We have short, um, a short attention span in the West. 
right? We, we talk a lot and, and, and uh, pose for the photos during the peace agreement, and we don't necessarily put up the dollars, especially over the long term. Financing Ukraine's rebuilding is likely to meet as many or more of the difficulties than financing the war has been. I'll just lay on the table sort of one potential partial solution to the shortfall, and that lies in the sum $300 billion of frozen Russian assets, much of which are Russian sovereign central bank assets. Now, multiple layers of legal complexity and potential economic backlash have to be carefully considered before acting on these assets. Yet there is certainly a compelling moral and practical case for using frozen Russian assets, particularly state assets, to cover the cost of Russia's war. It's Russia's war. Perhaps you can frame it as a down payment, if you like, on the war's rep war reparations. Using the interest from such assets now for rebuilding, uh, for beginning the process of rebuilding, or for funding Ukraine's defense, which as we know, um, is, is suffering painfully um, from the lack of ammunition at the current moment, could boost Ukraine's finances and give the West leverage for pushing Russia to the negotiating table, for pushing it to abandon its goal of controlling all of Ukraine. And this brings me to a final point, which is security. Having spent over half of my life studying Russia, the Soviet Union, Russia and its neighbors, I can unequivocally state that rebuilding must include a robust security arrangement for Ukraine. Last week, President Putin restated his fundamental motive for the invasion. In his rambling and grossly inaccurate retelling of history to Tucker Carlson, Putin claimed again that Ukraine is not a state and the Ukrainians are not a people. Lest we think that Putin alone buys into this view, Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president and prime minister, and once known uh, in the West as a liberal reformer, made the case more succinctly than Putin did in his two-hour interview. He tweeted last week that Russia's president explained thoroughly and in detail to the Western world why Ukraine has never, does not, and will never exist. Consequently, rebuilding must entail a firm commitment Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. Rebuilding is intimately tied to security. Without security, private capital, including both foreign and domestic uh, investors, are, uh, who, who will ultimately be the backbone of any successful Ukrainian economy over the long term, are far less likely to commit the resources that are necessary to Ukraine's rebuilding. What should a security commitment entail? On the one hand, it cannot be a repeat of the flimsy 1994 Budapest Memorandum. On the other hand, at the moment, a publicly declared commitment to NATO membership at the end of the war might merely incentivize Russia to escalate its destructive campaign to take more territory with even greater barbarity. So we don't have any good options. Nevertheless, any post-war security agreement for Ukraine must be a credible deterrent to Russia. It must therefore include continued and long-term military sales and aid, escalated military training and concrete enforcement mechanisms should Russia resume the war. So to wrap up, there are powerful moral, economic and geopolitical arguments for rebuilding Ukraine. Despite the vast scope, Ukraine is already taking important steps from the community level on up to the national level. And finally, 
any sustainable rebuilding must find ways to deter future Russian aggression. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen, for sharing your thoughts. Now we have a very special guest uh, uh, in our panel. Uh, but before I introduce her, I would like to put your attention on the picture that uh, is the main picture uh, covering this event. Uh, this is Ukrainian soldier that is on the just deliberated territories in the eastern of the east, in the eastern of Ukraine. And this picture was uh, made by Ukrainian photographer, was photographer in civic life. But on the second day of the war, he came to, uh, to the Ukrainian army and until now. He is in Ukrainian armed forces defending my country. His name is Konstantin Tanish. This powerful photo uh, builds a bridge to our next speaker, Natalia Chermoshenseva. She arrived from Kyiv just day before yesterday to join us in person and to share her thoughts about uh, her uh, tremendous work with Ukrainian communities in South Ukraine. Natalia is a human rights activist and she runs the Volunteers Initiative Dignity. Natalia, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the invitation uh, for this important and very timely event. Uh, it's my honor and pleasure uh, to be here in the time when we are approaching the second anniversary of the large-scale war and 10 years of that Russia has started against a war uh, uh, that started uh, against my country. For two last years, I have been working with the municipalities from all uh, over Ukraine, and uh, together we discussed the approaches and uh, the best ways for future recovery uh, of the country's and people's resilience. And I want to share uh, them with you. Uh, last Thursday, for example, I had training for 23 communities from different regions of Ukraine. In uh, many ways, uh, those communities uh, have been affected by the war, either through uh, surviving occupation or destroyed by rocket attacks. In many ways, all these uh, communities need support and rebuild. They need to rebuild uh, either water supply system or roads uh, or bridges or schools or kindergartens. And before working on each uh, individual community projects, we always start the conversation uh, with the local leaders about the principles and approaches that can make reconstruction sensitivity and effect. And the first principle uh, is to renew and rebuild in a smart way. Uh, our aim uh, is to change the way we look at the infrastructure. Our task is not to rebuild the old facilities, uh, but to build new ones considering our new reality and our future challenges. This includes the availability of shelters, accessibility for people with physical and medical disabilities, including amputees. The second one is leave no one behind. However, uh, this is challenging. This approach uh, means that there are certain groups that need bigger support and more attention. However, there is no single person in Ukraine that has not been affected by war. 
And our main challenge is how to prioritize the groups that need support the most. Uh, it's a difficult to do, uh, but we are trying to do our best. And that is the third principle uh, that helps us uh, to face these challenges. The third principle is gender equality and social inclusion. This approach also includes involving different groups of women and men in the dialogue about recovery and reconstruction, as well as about prioritizing and allocated of resources. And this approach helps to find good solution, uh, but also to reduce the level of conflict uh, and to build opportunities and spaces for dialogue in communities. All those conversations are not easy. Uh, delivering results within these principles and approaches is also hard. However, these are like lighthouses uh, that keep us on our way and up to make our job well done. And uh, for me personally, an express, ex, uh, very express, impressive example of resilience and recovery, it is uh, very small communities. It's now Varansovkan in Kherson region. Uh, this is my um, home region in the south of Ukraine, near Crimea. <clears throat> Almost 80% um, of the region is still occupied by Russia. The Novorensovka community is from 15 to 50 uh, kilometers far at the front line across the river Dnieper. And the community has eight villages. One of those villages with 2,500 uh, people was destroyed by 80%. Other villages have no single undestroyed house, partly or completely. In June 2023, after Kohovka Dam was exploded by Russians, this community has lost constant access to drink water. Even though the situation in this community is so hard, we are investing our efforts in practical steps for rebuilding. Uh, the priority is uh, to rebuild houses, of course, uh, because people are returning uh, back home to live in their community. Uh, the volunteer initiative Dignity, which I'm running, helps uh, to equip a shelter in uh, the school. Uh, mentioned about education, it's very important. And uh, before the um, large-scale war, uh, there were seven schools in this community. And today, uh, four schools are completely destroyed and they cannot be restored. Three schools need capital repair and part of the reconstruction. And they're almost the same situation with kindergartens. In total, uh, 421 uh, children live in the community. About 100 children survived the occupation and have witnessed physical and psychological violence, the deaths of loved ones, and live in cellars without means of substance for a long time. About 100 children live under constant shelling. Uh, the truth is that now we cannot rebuild the school in this community uh, completely because uh, Russian drones uh, will see that the renovation and uh, will immediately bomb it again because of this um, 15 uh, kilometers of the front line. However, uh, we can make a good shelter in this school uh, with access to water, good ventilation, etc. At the same time, in another village of this community, 
where the artillery, artillery doesn't reach, local authorities and volunteers are organizing a center for children. And for them, we are currently looking for a tennis table and uh, so the children can play tennis. And uh, for those children, <clears throat> the war is going on, for, uh, on two years. But this is the childhood and uh, there will no other one. And those tennis table and the efforts to organize activities for kids, this is something that can help them recover mentally. And uh, for me, this is a real example uh, for res of resilience. And I'm often asked, uh, what gives me the strength to keep going despite the situation? And the main thing for me are faith and people. Now I'm reading the book, uh, Resilience, uh, by Stephen Sotwick. It's an American scientist uh, from the Yale School of Medicine and is one of the world's leading experts on uh, psychological traumatization and human resilience. Uh, and they, in this book, uh, I read a story. Um, the story really resonated with me. Uh, he describes the story of Jim Dana, uh, the manager of Sandler O'Neill Investment and the survivor after 9-11 attack. In the process of rebuilding the company, Dana and his colleagues were motivated by the belief that they had a moral obligation to bring the company back to life to honor those who were killed and who survived. And they believe that rebuilding and prosperity will send a powerful message to their enemies. And I personally believe in it as well. We are working for those who were killed and for those who stay alive in the communities, like now Varnsovka, like my home region, because it's about the victory, life or death, and gives strength and peace. Thank you. Thank you, Natalia, for sharing your experience uh, with us, and thank you for being with us today in person. And the last uh, but not least, the speaker uh, is uh, Maria Sharabeta. She is the vice president of the Ukrainian American Community Center. I would share with, with you, for me, arriving in August to, to Minneapolis, the Ukrainian community and especially Ukrainian American Community Center became a part of support and sustainability. The only one thing I will share with you, Marie, is uh, the, the one who started the Ukrainian school uh, here in Minneapolis and being as a single caregiver and the mom of a five-year-old child, for me, the school is a part of uh, feeling so good uh, being so far back uh, from home. Um, Maria, share with us, please, the tremendous job the Ukrainian community in Minneapolis do, is doing. Uh, I think that this is an example for other Ukrainian communities all over the United States and maybe in the world. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you here and those uh, that are online. Uh, great discussion, much needed today, just because not only because of the anniversary, but what is to come next. It's a very timely discussion. I'm so glad to be here. I'll probably take a little bit different spin and talk about the local community efforts. We've talked about international order and kind of more at a federal level and 
just to supplement that picture, I wanna um, talk about our community a little bit to say that all efforts matter. And I know we are out of time, so I'll try to be brief. Um, I serve on the board of a Ukrainian Community Center. I'm a, it's a volunteer board, um, serve as a vice president today. And so I have exposure to a lot of the different programs that are going on. And frankly, we do so much, we don't have time to talk about it. <laughs> so that's a, that's a, a bit of a pro problem. Uh, the community here in Twin Cities is uh, very vibrant. We have about uh, 15,000 uh, Ukrainians, according to the last census. Uh, with the refugees probably at another 3,000 or so, so a little bit more. So overall, it's a fairly small community, but quite active and quite vibrant community. And um, two days after the war has started, we pulled community volunteers, community leaders to form a uh, cross-community effort called Stand with Ukraine Minnesota, which is all a volunteer-driven organization. Um, I pulled the initial meeting, someone else is leading this right now, and uh, that organization have collected probably over $3 million of humanitarian aid for Ukraine. The Ukrainian Center serves as a hub, um, has served for months as a hub for collecting um, medical aid and distributing that um, to Ukraine, protective gear, whatever the needs are, we've been so actively involved. And I bring this as an example of community efforts that happen all over the US and frankly, all over the world. And in the first few weeks and months of war, when soldiers went on the front lines in tennis shoes and no protective gear, it was communities like ours that supplied them with basic protection, medical aid and, and help with those first few months and weeks of, of the war before the uh, government aid uh, federal the uh, government uh, kicked in. Um, as far as our um, efforts here, so um, a lot of humanitarian aid type efforts, helping um, fund um, orphanages in, in Ukraine, those displaced uh, children. Um, medical aid is probably the primary one. And then um, we also do a lot of advocacy type work. Uh, so there's the Ukrainian American Community um, Advocacy Committee. Uh, there are a couple of members from that committee sitting um, in the second row there, and they probably know more than, they, than I do about that one, but it, we've been uh, all very active in one, raising the awareness about what's happening in Ukraine and also working with our political representatives at all levels um, through the grassroots effort and also energizing the community to support those um, Governor Waltz uh, signed uh, a bill to divest Russian efforts from the pension for funds of Minnesota, probably one of the first, if not the first in the US. Um, that happened very quickly with the help of the advocacy committee. Um, Senator Bobachar, you saw her today, has been a long time friend of the community, traveled to Ukraine in unwavering support. We're so grateful for that. Um, at a local level, uh, just to bring an example, uh, last November, uh, the last week of November um, was announced as the uh, Holocaust Memorial Week uh, for the Holocaust that occurred in Ukraine in 31, 33, about 8 a million people were starved to death. And uh, Minnesota recognized um, Holocaust um, and made a Memorial Week uh, with uh, a lot of help from uh, local political leaders 
and um, uh, Representative Jordan in particular. So absolutely um, thankful for those. And just bringing a few examples, there's so much happening. And all of this is to say that local efforts matter. These small grassroots efforts, um, they are so critical um, because they, they, they helped in that initial wave of um, um, stopping Russian aggression. And frankly, I personally believe they will be critical for the rebuilding of Ukraine, uh, both uh, in Ukraine and, and overseas. Um, I know we are out of time, so maybe a couple of things to focus on is, um, as far as rebuilding Ukraine, uh, I would emphasize education to the point that you brought up. But I wanna emphasize um, specifically within the education, it's educating a new generation of community leaders that um, could rebuild the Ukraine within. In the 80s, when I grew up, that um, personal opinions and leaderships were oppressed. It, like, it was um, oppressed by the culture and by that educational system. So bringing those community leaders, helping them rebuild with Ukraine within, that uh, to me, it's a major initiative that I hope schools like Humphrey and others um, could pull from the lessons that from the other um, crisis type territories and, and kind of um, figure out how do we educate strong community leaders because they will drive everything else. Um, as far as other grassroots efforts, um, and I'm a big believer in those, especially in the country like Ukraine where it's hard to do something top down, it takes years and generations of leaders, um, is uh, the um, uh, grassroots efforts in terms of reviving the economy that you know, underpinning the, the economic investments. And the war actually um, created a number of technology clusters, um, for example, in the drone industry, probably leading technology development in the world, in the industry that did not exist before. But today, um, many, uh, and I, I have a bit of exposure to that, but um, you know, many of the key companies and manufacturers are actually looking to Ukraine as the testing ground for new technologies. Those technology clusters exist and investing in the kind of grassroots bottoms up effort that removes the bureaucracy, removes any kind of mishandling of funds. Um, that, that's a you know great way to go for me. And then uh, last but not least, the energy independence. And again, um, it could be done bottoms up in, uh, through the distributed energy. Ukraine's been relying on Russian energy for a long time, and it's been, um, um, uh, uh, you know, that structure has been hard to change because we're talking about large power plants and gas supplies and whether it's nuclear or gas, we could rebuild the, the energy economy bottoms up through distributed energy and renewables and clean energy. As uh, Mr. Yesenyuk uh, and the former Prime Minister were saying, it's not rebuilding, it's building from scratch. And now is the, the perfect time to do it. Um, and how do we use investments, both uh, time and resources and funds effectively, and that grassroots effort in local communities here and especially in Ukraine is, uh, uh, is something I would love to see us invest into. Um, and um, last but not least, let me say that Ukraine is standing today because of support 
from the US government and the communities like Minnesota and every single person that's here. Today, the Senate passed a bill to uh, uh, offer additional aid to Ukraine uh, next is the House. And I would encourage every one of you, regardless of your political affiliation, please put it aside and think about it's not even about Ukraine. It's truly about the world order, peace, and democracy in the whole world. Please call your congressional representatives, especially in District 1, Red Finstead, District 7, Michelle uh, Fisbach, and District 8, Peter Stauber, Pete Stauber. Please call them. Please urge them to support Ukraine. It matters. It will impact generation of um, generations ahead. It will impact communities outside of Ukraine. It will impact world peace and order. So appreciate all the support from the local community here in Minnesota. And thank you for all of you to dedicate, for dedicating time to be with us here today. It's it's critical for the peace in the whole world. So thank you. Thank you, Maria. And that was exactly what I was uh, inspired a lot arriving to the to, to Minnesota. Uh, the example on how the Ukrainian community can act not only in humanitarian or educational or volunteers uh, uh, matters, but also how the community works with political leaders. That's really an inspirational example. Uh, thank you to all the panelists for sharing your thoughts, for sharing your uh, insights and uh, for your recommendations. We are ex actually running out of time and uh, my su uh, suggestion will be that we have 30 minutes here for networking. And if you have questions, you can put the questions directly to the panelists and to know each other and to build some connections. And uh, let me thank you again for being with us today. Let me thank you for all your support, for your interest in what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, that matters for us a lot. That builds a part of our sustainability. And thank you for the panelists for sharing your thoughts that makes us more attentive on the issued issues as we, as a new community and national leaders, should and we'll be thinking about for building back better after Ukraine wins the war in order to win peace. Thank you again. Take your time for networking and uh, see you maybe later. Thank you. Thank you.